This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. Did you set a goal for how many books you'd like to read this year? As we get closer to the end of 2023, one way to maximize your reading time is to make sure you always have an audiobook downloaded and ready to play. Not sure what to listen to next? Fans of Heather Morris and Kristen Hanna will want to check out a sweeping new historical novel from Sarah Freethy, The Porcelain Maker. Narrated by Kristen Atherton, this is an epic story of love, betrayal, and art that spans decades from World War II to 21st century America, inspired by a real porcelain factory that was run by the SS. Start listening to The Porcelain Maker by Sarah Freethy now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro Kapinski, and my guest today is internationally best-selling author, Bryn Turnbull, author of The Paris Deception, an enthralling novel about art theft and forgery in Nazi-occupied Paris, and two brave women who risk their lives rescuing looted masterpieces from Nazi destruction. Bryn, who is also the author of the historical novels The Woman Before Wallace and The Last Grand Duchess, earned a Master of Letters in Creative Writing from the University of St. Andrews, a Master of Professional Communication from Toronto Metropolitan University, and a Bachelor's Degree in English from McGill University, she lives in Toronto. Bryn, welcome to A Bookish Home, and congratulations on The Paris Deception. This is such a fascinating novel, and I've been really looking forward to hearing more about some of the real history here and the art world in France under the occupation. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you. I really appreciate you having me on. So I you know, was kind of swept away by art world in Paris and these really fascinating women and their stories. Um, I spent a few nights staying up way too late reading because I didn't know what was going to happen to them. So I just thought it was really uh, such an enthralling read. And I guess just to start, I'd be really curious to hear, you know, kind of what piqued your interest for this as your next project? Was it sort of the storyline of one particular character? Were you just kind of fascinated by the art world? you know, under the Nazis? What, how did this come to be for you? So one of the entry points into this story for me was actually through the historical character who crops up in the book uh, named Rose Galland. And she was a resistance operative who worked within the Jeux du Pont Museum, which is the museum where the Nazis basically took all of the art that they looted from Jewish families uh, across occupied Europe. And they kind of used this museum as something of a something of a gallery for themselves, where high-ranking Nazis would go in and pick which pieces of art they wanted, and they'd send them back in on trains um, into the Reich. And so I knew I knew about Rose Valland, and I knew that she had been this resistance operative who worked in the museum. Initially, she was going to kind of be my main character, but over the course of doing my research. I learned about a specific kind of art which was kept in the museum away from all of the other art. And it was known as degenerate art. So degenerate art was a term that was actually coined by Hitler who was himself a failed artist. And degenerate art was anything that he considered not that was non-representational essentially. So we're talking about modernist art, cubism, um, you know, impressionism, all sorts of these different sort of non-representational and incredibly impactful art movements, which Hitler didn't like, he didn't understand. And within Germany itself, he'd had he'd had all works of degenerate art removed from German public collections and burned. 
So when I learned about this degenerate art movement, I thought, okay, well, I want to look at that. And so I moved away from Rose Valland specifically as the main character into um, a fictional character um, who came sort of out of the out of the woodwork, so to speak, to work to replace and save these works of art by by replacing them with clever forgeries. And it just kind of caught my imagination. And I knew that that was a story that I, I really wanted to tell. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I didn't really know. I knew that obviously the Nazis looted so much artwork and mm -hmm. um, sort of that side of things, but it's almost like book banning, but with art, I, which I didn't realize that they were kind of trying to, you know, get rid of this whole particular kind of art. This is what they call degenerate art. I thought that was really just interesting to read about. And, you know, I kind mm -hmm. of wondered a little bit about, um, you know, in the story, you know, the, the art forgeries play a big role. Is that something that, um, of course, I don't want to give too much away, but is that something that, that <laughs> really was a big thing in the art world um, during World War II? Like, um, you know, different forgeries to try to trip up the Nazis a bit? Trip up the Nazis. So there was a historical forger who was operating during the Second World War. And he sold a fake Vermeer to uh, to actually Hermann Göring. His name was Han van Meegeren, and he was a Dutch forger. He basically he he would create these paintings using bakelite, an early thermoplastic, and he'd mix it into his oil paints and bake the canvas in an oven. And so he ended up selling this fake Vermeer, which was seen as this you know newly discovered Vermeer. In quotes, he sold this to Hermann Goering, and after the war, he was brought up on charges of um, collaboration because you know Vermeer obviously is a very prominent, um, celebrated Dutch artist, and so he was seen as selling, you know, Holland's cultural heritage. You know, putting it this is this is not exactly a great explanation, but um, that keeps my know, interest. Was so, he still considered a collaborator, even though it was fake? So he, after the war, you know, he's kind of a, he was a very sort of shades of gray character, so to speak. You know, you talk to some people and they see him as a, as a folk hero. You talk to other people and they see him as a villain, but he, he did do this. He sold this fake Vermeer to, to Herman Goering. And after the war, he actually um, ended up in a courtroom recreating it using his own method in front of a tribunal to you know, exonerate himself from these charges of racketeering, which is really interesting. So, so that was, that was interesting to me. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's going to be my method of forgery. And then as I started writing, I realized uh, I, I'd bitten off, I think a little bit more than I could have chewed, uh, that I chewed. <laughs> the women in the story, the other kind of industry besides the art world that you dive into a little bit is kind of these vineyards in France and how mm -hmm. those were affected by the war, which I'd never really read about before. Could you talk about that a little bit? And um, yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting side of things that I hadn't seen depicted before. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, so when you when you start writing a book, you kind of go, okay, well, these are the broad strokes of the story. And then you go, great, and you, you kind of map it out. And then you start realizing that the specifics really, really do matter. So with this story, uh, these characters are forging works of art and the 
big question for me became, well, where are they going to take it? Where are they going to keep all of these works of art? They live in tiny little apartments, sort of studio apartments in Paris. Where are they going to take the originals and where are these originals going to stay safe? And I kind of settled on the notion of, well, what, what was happening in, uh, in the Champagne region? I, I had this image in my head of this crumbling chateau in, uh, you know, nestled within these vineyards. And so I started looking into it and Champagne actually had a really, really interesting history of resistance during the war, which I thought I, I couldn't leave out really. Uh, Champagne was an area, so so the, the Nazis were really, really into Champagne. They had somebody come in called a wine Führer, who basically was responsible for having Champagne sent to the German military all, all over the world. And so this man was in charge of basically increasing production of Champagne, despite the fact that, you know, Champagne, you, you, it doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? It takes three years to make there's this whole involved process of making it and it's all dependent on the weather. It's all dependent on what's happening in, in the vines. And so the Champagne region resisted this man in, in many, many really fascinating ways. And so, yeah, the Champagne region became, I initially, I didn't think it was going to be as big a part of the story as it ended up being, but I, I got absolutely captivated by this uh, history of resistance. Yeah. And, just sort of spending time and as you say, those crumbling chateau, I thought was really interesting just as a different setting in the book. And it kind of made me wonder, did you mm -hmm. get to travel to that region during your research or anything? <laughs> I did actually. I ended oh. up, uh, I ended up in Champagne in Epernay and Reims and it was absolutely incredible. I ended up going into the Tadinger Champagne caves which were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. But, you know, I do all of this for my, my readers, of course. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and I, I would imagine then that Paris was a big leg of, of that research trip. What kinds of places did you go there? Absolutely it was. Well, I mean, I spent a lot of time at the Jeux du Palme because obviously that's where the book is set. And it's located within the grounds of the Jardin de Tuileries, which kind of... I didn't realize quite how high the gates around the Chardin de Tuileries are when I was when I initially started mapping the book out. So I spent quite a bit of time in the Jardin itself, sort of figuring out how certain mechanics of the book were gonna were gonna play out, which was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, Paris is it's such a magical city, and it wears its history so uh, so visibly. And I think that's such, you know, it's such a privilege to be able to go and to experience it and to be able to kind of let your imagination fire on the cobblestones where, where your story is going to take place. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I've been reading a lot of books recently set in, um, you know, Paris during World War II or just Paris in the past. Um, I am sort of traveling to Paris twice today or earlier this morning. Um, I interviewed Amy, Amy Runyon about a bakery in Paris, and it's really making me want to do, you know, at some point sort of a delving into Paris's history trip. And not to put you on, on the spot, but are there any particular places, if, if someone is like me and reading a lot of books set in Paris, that you really might recommend for kind of immersing yourself in Paris's rich history? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I certainly would say the Champagne region is remarkable. 
the Marché aux Puces, the flea market, is absolutely magical. Uh, going there and sort of picking through all of these incredible vintage finds is just, I mean, I could have whiled away a month doing that. And I'd also say you have to have, uh, you know, a martini at Bar Hemingway in the Ritz. It is just an unbelievably cool place. And the people you meet are just incredible. Oh, that all sounds so fun. I've got to get myself there. Well, you know, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting um, how you portray sort of all these different forms of resistance in the book. And I wondered if as you were kind of researching that, or I guess just in, even in general for their book, is there anything that really stuck with you or surprised you um, as you were researching? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think the Second World War captivates audiences for so, so many reasons. And, and one of the reasons is because we can all put ourselves in the shoes of these people who are not that far back in history. You know, this is still living history. And we think about, well, well, what would we do? What would I do if I was in that circumstance? And I think it's easy for us removed from that historical context to say, well, of course I would have joined the resistance. Of course I would have, you know, operated a, you know, a briefcase radio for, you know, for the resistance, for the English. And of course I absolutely would have gone into the fields, you know, done what I could, blown up train tracks, that sort of thing. But the thing that really struck me in the research was that, you know, that was not what 90% of the population was doing. 90% of the population was just trying to get by. They were trying to survive. And in Paris, there was a very concerted effort to starve the population. You know, they were on starvation rations for a lot of the German occupation. And so what interested me is what does resistance look like when it's not organized? What does resistance look like on an individual level? What are you going to do if you've got a child and you can't, you know, you can't take up and join the resistance? What are you going to do if you, you know, if you've got somebody else to care for, if you've got sort of these other responsibilities, or maybe you're just too scared? What do you do? How do you resist within your own sphere of influence? And so that for me was the central question of this narrative. It was, what are these characters going to do? Because they're going to resist in some way. And, and in this book, everybody does have their own form of resistance, as you pointed out. And they don't know what's going on. They don't know what everybody else is doing because that wasn't the reality at the time. You didn't share your secrets during the war. You kept them very close to your chest. And so that to me was, was really what drove the story and what drove my interest as I was writing it. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by those kinds of questions. And it's making me think readers or listeners who are fans of Kristen Hannah's The Nightingale, I think will really mm -hmm. enjoy this one as well. I think it explores some similar um, dilemmas and just, yeah, what do these women do under such um, difficult circumstances? Um, well, you know, I was kind of looking into um, just, you know, poking around your website and things, and I, I noticed a couple things. One that you are teaching a course soon for um, historical fiction writers. And I wondered if you had any, you know, tips or advice you give a lot to um, people who are, you know, maybe working on a first historical fiction book, which I am. So I am also that, you know, contented <laughs> listener, but I'm guessing other others listening might also be aspiring writers who um, would be interested in your thoughts. 
Oh, that's fantastic that you're writing. Um, I look forward <laughs> to reading it one day. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, you know, the thing that I always say to my students, so I, t I teach um, creative writing with the University of Toronto's continuing ed program. And the thing that I always say is, first and foremost, make sure that you develop your secondary characters. Because it's easy to tell the story of one person, of your protagonist. And that is an amazing story. You're going to tell that. But secondary characters don't know that they're secondary. Mm. You know, if that makes sense to you. They don't know that they're a secondary character in your story. So what's their life look like when they're not on the page? What are their concerns? That's something that I think is really interesting to explore because, you know, nobody nobody is the secondary character in their own life. Even if they're not on the page 100% of the time, what is it that they're doing? That's how you develop that richness in that character, which is going to add so much more to your story, to your central storyline, I think. The, the other thing I was going to ask about, because I had seen that you taught that course, but um, I also was so intrigued that you, um, people can go on like historical tours with you in Europe. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm hosting my first tour this spring. I'm so excited. It is, uh, it's with an organization called Classical Pursuits. And we're going to be going to the UK and using my first novel, The Woman Before Wallace, as kind of a lens through which to talk about what was happening in the UK in the interwar period. What was happening, you know, this is the generation of the bright young things of, you know, sort of this explosion of culture between the wars. And um, of course, it's the world that my first character, Talma Furness, inhabited. She was a mistress to the Prince of Wales prior to uh, him meeting Wallace Simpson. She was actually the woman who introduced Wallace and Edward and kind of kicked off the abdication crisis. So uh, yeah, we're going to be going for a week. We're staying in Windsor and uh, there's still, uh, there's still places available on it. So if anybody's oh, interested, amazing. it's going to be great fun. We're going during the, uh, we're going during the social season. So we're uh, looking forward to a lot of kind of cool events and experiences. Yeah, that sounds great. And I, I'm, it might be a little bit early, but do you think you'll do something similar for this book? You know, or like tied to this book? Fingers crossed. That's certainly the hope. Oh, that would be very exciting. Um, well, you know, one of the things I also wondered about was your writing routine because you're teaching. Obviously, you have to make a lot of time to research. What is your process like in terms of maybe like splitting up your days or do you you know spend months researching and then you do all your writing kind of what's your routine look like so I the way that I do it I'll do kind of a year of research and then a year of writing that's usually how it sort of breaks down I'll figure out what my plot line is going to be and from there I'll just do a deep dive into the research of the time period with this book, I was really, really lucky because not only did I get to go to Paris to do the research, I actually was able to meet a number of art conservators, which is uh, Sophie's job in the book. So that was really, really interesting, kind of doing that on the ground research with them. And then once I've got all that research and I've kind of figured out everything that's going on in that historical moment, politically, economically, socially, then I start kind of mapping out more in, in more detail what the story is. And that's that's where I jump into the writing. I will say the research is never done. 
ever. <laughs> I'm constantly diving back into the research going, oh gosh, what's what's the wallpaper in this room? You know, what's going on? Here? What are the pieces of art on this wall? That sort of thing. Um, yeah, but I love, the, I love doing that. That makes me wonder, are you able to say anything about what you're researching or who you're researching next? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, my next book is coming out next summer. It's called The Berlin Apartment. And it is about a couple that gets separated by the construction of the Berlin Wall. Oh, wow. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, well, very interesting period. Yeah. Well, lastly, you know, we as readers have gotten to kind of get swept away by your books. And I'm just wondering what books have really captivated you lately that you'd want to recommend to listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny that you mentioned uh, you were speaking with Amy Runyon earlier today. Her book is, I'm halfway through a bakery in Paris and I'm absolutely loving it. She and I are actually doing an event in a couple of days. So uh, I'm, I'm loving her book. It's just completely transporting me back to, uh, back to those cobblestone streets, which is pretty wonderful. Yeah, your books would definitely be friends on the shelf. That's fun that you're doing an event together. I've enjoyed both of them so much. They are totally friends on the shelf. Um, well, you know, I just really hope that listeners go pick up The Paris Deception. I think it would be a fascinating read for people. I also think it would make a really interesting book club pick. Um, lots to discuss. And um, yes, I hope people go pick it up. And thank you so much, Bryn, for coming on to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.